Tonight, we're finishing up a series uh, that we've been in for the last four weeks, and it's a series simply entitled Voice. The idea is this. All of us, all of us in this room have a voice. You have an opportunity to bring your voice to this world, to the relationships and things around you. And we live in a culture and we live in a world that is easily found suppressing our voices, believing that there are certain people, certain individuals, we could call them celebrities, we could call them experts, you can put a lot of different names on them, but they're the voices that matter. They're the ones that are significant. And we feel about our own voice that it doesn't matter as much. And so we find ourselves suppressing our voice and only looking for and listening to other people's voices. And what I believe and what we believe is that there is something sacred and significant about who you are, your voice, your opinions, your experiences, and that for you to speak and bring your voice to the table, to bring your voice to this community, to bring your voice to politics, to bring your voice in art, it's something that matters. It matters for you and it matters for the world around us. So we've been talking about that for the last few weeks around these different concepts. And for me this week, I wanted to kind of wrap up this series with a broader context conversation around the topic of story. Your voice when it comes to your story. What does that look like? And what do I mean when I say that? There's a couple stories that I find to be really fascinating in the Gospels. These interactions that people have with Jesus that the Gospel writers decided to record and say, if you're going to talk about who this guy Jesus was and what he was about, these are some things that you need to recognize. And the first story that I, want to, that, that I find fascinating is this moment where Jesus is in a crowd of people trying to get to a certain destination. And Jesus is pretty popular at this point, as, according to the story. There's large crowds around him that are just kind of packing in and it's hard to get anywhere. It's not a fun environment to try and travel anywhere because of the numbers of people that just con continually condense around Jesus. And there's a woman who has been struggling from this physical ailment of bleeding for 12 years. She cannot seem to see this thing stop. She has spent all of her money, all of her resources. She's seen all the doctors, the storyteller tells us, but nothing has worked and she's literally at the end of her rope. And she hears about this healer, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, and she begins to believe and think, if I just touch his robe, if I just touch his cloak, something could happen there. So as the crowds are just hurtled around Jesus, and it's hard to get anywhere, she fights through the crowd, which if you've ever been at a big concert or you know, a really busy street trying to get anywhere, it's not fun. But she fights through, and she finds herself eventually getting to the point where she can touch Jesus' cloak. And in that instant, the storyteller tells us that she sees and senses that she is healed. But something takes place. The story doesn't end there. It says this in Mark chapter 5. It says, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, uh, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? In other words, the disciples are answering this question with, uh, do you not perceive what's happening? Who touched you? Everyone? Like, what, what, what other answer do you want here? This is a crazy, ridiculous question. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus perceives something has happened. And rather than just allowing things to just continue onward, Jesus decides to stop everything and do this incredibly awkward and uncomfortable thing by asking this and really demanding in many ways. He's not moving forward until someone steps forward. And this woman in fear and trembling is to come and share her story. 
This is what happened. That for Jesus, it's important that this happens before they move on. And she's fearful to do this. Why? Is she not one that maybe has seen her life continually suppressed? Your story doesn't matter. It's not significant. But Jesus seems to be this individual that says, no, stop the presses. We're not moving anywhere. We're not doing anything until this story is told. This other moment with a blind beggar we find in the book of Mark. It says, and they, Jesus' posse, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. The crowd is tired of this guy. They're tired of his voice. They're tired of him trying to kind of communicate his story and they keep suppressing and say don't bother don't bother but he cried out all the more son of David have mercy on me and Jesus stopped and said call him and they called the blind man saying to him take heart get up he is calling you next slide it says in throwing off his cloak he sprang up and came to Jesus and Jesus said to him what do you want me to do for you the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. There's something fascinating about these two stories. What I find fascinating is Jesus is continually presented as the gospels, in, in the Gospels, not as one that is trying to figure out what's going on. Not as one that's interacting with people and trying to understand, can I do anything for you? Like we see in these encounters. Jesus is continually seen throughout the Gospels as the one that's in the know before anybody else. He's actually understanding and perceiving what we find in the scriptures of people's hearts and thoughts. There's a couple moments that I think uh, it's significant to look at. Let's go next slide. It says, and when they saw their faith... He said, Jesus said, men, your sins are forgiven. And in this instance, the scribes and the Pharisees, in other words, the religious leaders of the day, began to question Jesus, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? And who can forgive sins alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, Jesus knows what's going on here. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? They didn't speak this out loud. This is a big, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Like, I'm so fearful that someone's going to do this someday, because i got some weird things happening up here, as you might know. Uh, next slide. There's another occurrence. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? This is in their hearts. They're just, uh, you know, kind of feeling and sensing something. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Apparently, religious leaders have a big deal with forgiveness. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus, que thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Here's what I find fascinating. 36 times throughout the Gospels, Jesus is seen in this kind of state and place. That he already knows what's going on. He already knows what people are thinking. He already knows what's happening in their hearts. And yet here are multiple stories throughout the Gospels where Jesus, just like this woman that's looking to be healed, and just like this blind beggar Bartimaeus, he stops the presses, he stops the crowd, and he asks them, who touched me? Because there's a story that needs to be told here. The gospel writers have done everything to already communicate. He knows the answer to this question. Jesus asked this blind man, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> I'm sorry, but if I interact with a blind man, I'm going to perceive that on the top of their list, if not at the very top, one of the things is like, I'd like to see a lame man. I'd like to walk. A hungry man. I'd like to eat. Whatever it is, it's an understood thing. But Jesus, he's not playing dumb here. What I believe is something different is happening. He's looking at these individuals and people that culture is continually suppressed. Your voice doesn't matter. Why bother? And he's saying, you need to tell your story.
What I know is that we live in a culture, as I said at the very beginning, that you have a story. You have something that has happened, your hopes, your dreams, your experiences, things that have taken place. And there is a tendency to be one that suppresses those things and allows others to continually suppress those things. And what I believe Jesus is doing through the Gospels over and over and over again, and the Scriptures are doing when it comes to your humanity, is it's taking these questions and saying it matters. That your story, it's made up of what are you thinking? What are you experiencing? What are you feeling? What are your hopes? What are you dreaming about? What is devastating you? When we talk about your story, I believe that this is what we see Jesus interacting with over and over and over again. And what the work of Christ is to do is to take these things, whatever your answer is for these questions, and to look you in the eye and say, it matters. It matters. And there's no hierarchy here for there's matter more. No, it matters. Whatever you're feeling, whatever you've experienced, it matters. And to be one, stop the presses, your story matters. What we know is that we live in a consumeristic culture. We live in a, in a time and a place where we believe that when it comes to finding the things that we need to make our life whole, to find healing, if you will, that the work that we must do continually is to consume something, whether that's a medication, whether that's you know, a new show, a book, a thought, an idea. For me, growing up in the church environment that I did, the thought that I would find wholeness by consuming more sermons, reading more books, whatever it was, that there was something I needed to consume. And what we see Jesus do in these interactions in the Gospels is he communicates to this idea of healing is not found by consuming, not getting something, but by sharing your story. That for many of us, there's a potential brokenness inside of us. There's something we're trying to fix and make whole. And that part of that wholeness, I believe, is found when we begin to see our stories as just as valid as anybody else's. And we do this work where Jesus has this interaction with the blind man. He shares his story and Jesus says, your faith, your willingness to continually desire to share your story has made you well. Your story matters. All of it matters. When I thought about this concept of sharing your story, uh, there was one person, individual, that kind of just shot to the top of my list in this community. I thought, man, it would be so good if we could hear him just talk about this idea of your voice in your story. He's a good, good friend of mine that I've known my entire life, and many of you have uh, probably interacted with him at some point. Would you please welcome Mr. Alan Christensen as he comes to share this evening? So full disclosure, uh, Alan uh, was at my, not, he was a, uh, not a part of my birth, but you were as close as you get without being a part of my birth. Uh, he's been in my life uh, since day one uh, on many levels, and so I call him Uncle Alan, uh, just so you guys know. So if I, uh, I will call you Uncle Alan. It's a term of, term, term, term of endearment. Nailed it. Uh, anyways, uh, so if you want to call him Uncle Alan, please do so. It's great. So this man is an incredible storyteller. And I grew up always wanting to hear the stories that Uncle Alan had to tell. But more than that, the way this man thinks about story uh, has been a process, but a really beautiful one. So when it comes to this idea of story, what has been your journey and process up to this point to get you to where you are today? I grew up on a ranch. Uh, we had, I think I was in sixth grade before we got a telephone. I was in seventh or eighth grade before we ever had a TV. So storytelling was just part of our life, and, and my dad was a great storyteller. So I think I just grew up thinking that's what's supposed to happen. Um, 
then I went on with life. I became a landscaper, but at age 43, I decided that I wanted to do something different, and I went back to school to become a teacher. And uh, that's kind of what teaching is all about, is, is listening to other people's stories and, and, and sharing your own. So. so what is your thought and belief when it comes to you know, what I just talked about? Is that something you would lean into and say, there's something significant about everybody learning to share their story, or no, nah, there's only certain stories. Only certain people can make a crowd laugh, so they should be the ones that talk. Yeah, um, we tend to fall into that into, into that trap. But about four years ago, I, I became the social studies teacher. In other words, I teach the people who are going to be teachers about teaching social studies. And uh, the line that I I thought it was kind of original, but I hear you saying the same thing, so maybe I heard it from you. Is, is everybody has a story, and everybody's story matters. And even when you get into uh, history, there's a tendency to think that, that the important people, I was thinking about it even this afternoon, it's think about the word his story. <laughs> it tends to leave about half the population out right there. <laughs> so we need to change the English language to her story. Her story, right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've sort of developed this idea that, that other people's stories matter, but mine doesn't. Yeah. You had this interaction that we talked about um, earlier this week uh, when you're teaching uh, on the Crow Reservation uh, with a group of students when it came to story and that, that experience of suppressing, feeling suppressed in your voice. You remember what I'm talking oh, yeah, about? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so. love, I love this story, okay? So just talk about that. Well, I, at age 43, went back to school to become a teacher. I wanted to be an elementary teacher. Um, when I got done, it seemed nobody wanted to hire me. <laughs> so I went back and got my reading endorsement, and a job opened up on the Crow Reservation. I'm embarrassed to admit how little I knew about the Crow people. Uh, to be honest with you, I didn't really want the job. I wanted to practice interviewing. When I was offered the job, um, I suggested I would wait. My wife very diplomatically said, well, nobody else is knocking the door down. <laughs> you probably better take it. Uh, I was there about 10 minutes, and I, and I fell in love with the kids. I fell in love with the culture. But I also started becoming, because I was aware of how ignorant I had been, um, I also started to become kind of defensive. Um, the story that I was telling you about is, is we had a, a group of... Um, of kids, kind of our brightest and best, if you will. We put together a team for something called Odyssey of the Mind. And to be honest with you, I was a coach, which is kind of scary because I can't even tell you exactly what it was. But <laughs> we had, we're having this competition. We, we, we met in Hardin for a competition. So uh, my kids had to travel a grand total of 12 miles from Crow Agency to Hardin. And we got there a little bit early. Our, our whole team wasn't together. And so they sent us off to a classroom in the middle school. And um, so my kids were sitting there kind of hanging out. And at some point, another team needed a place to, to hang out, I guess. A team of white kids walked in, and I watched my kids physically shrink. It's sort of like they saw themselves of less value as soon as somebody else got there, since white people got there. So um, I've, I'm kind of sensitive about that uh, to the point where I've been known to get into some... He did discussions with people <laughs> about the fact that, that 
how dismissive we'd be. And, and you know, it's white, middle-class male. I've, I have all the advantages in the world where I live. And so, so, yeah, so that's one of my big pushes in what I'm doing now is everybody has a story. Listen to it. Because there's ways that, I mean, you growing up, I think me as well, um, working to understand there are cultural norms that have been created for different levels of voices and stories. And we don't even understand how we either are helping that or hurting that on, on many levels. And so we've, to start out by being just aware of it and sensing and knowing. Um, like we talked about when it comes to kids, that there's an element of, like I have a four-year-old son, and he always wants to tell me everything that's going on in his life and his mind and his heart, which is just exhausting at times. But I have the tendency to always be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Meanwhile, I'm not listening at all and just letting him go, or I'm just trying to shut him down. And there's something subtle to that. I don't think he's going to be a serial killer because of this, but uh, I hope not. But, you know, there's something subtle to that that I'm doing to my own son to say, hey, buddy, your voice doesn't matter right now. Your story doesn't matter right now as much as whatever else is in front of me. The line that I recall from when I was young is, children should be seen and not heard. And, uh, and granted, I have a four-year-old granddaughter, too, who never stops talking. So we've got to get them together, and then we won't have to. We can, yeah, it'll be great. All right. Church is done. We solved it. My life is better. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for you, a lot of the work that you're doing, both professionally and then personally, is trying to understand culturally what has been created or just your own life, trying to be somebody that is truly living out this idea of everyone has a story and every story matters. Can you talk a little bit about um, practically what that looks like for you as far as whether you are the one telling the story or the work of learning to listen to other people's stories? As you and I sat and visited earlier this week uh, about this, I, I tend to think about storytelling. Uh, there is a class that we offer actually called storytelling. And so um, earlier this week, I went to uh, art gallery to hear the hearts the, the, hear, hear the stories told um, but I always thought about telling the story as opposed to listening to the story and um, as you and I discussed it I realized it's very important that we listen to other people's stories um, there is no story if there's nobody to listen to it. And so, so for me, again, it's sort of coming from a position of dominance. Uh, uh, people have always listened to my story. Am, am I going to take time to listen to somebody else's? That's... And the idea that story is more than just a transfer of information, that many times uh, you talk about telling the same stories over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and part of, part of what we can be fearful of is, oh, you've already heard this one, and so we just kind of invalidate the story. But there's something profound, potentially, about actually, that's not the point. The point is not, you know, have you heard this one before? And you knew information, got it, and move on with your life. But actually learning to re revolve your life around stories uh, over and over and over again. Yeah, and growing up, it was sort of that way. Uh, my dad was loved to tell stories, and so we, we would hear him over again. Uh, toward the end of his life, uh, he was even more about, he says, I, I don't know if I've told you this one. And then he would tell me one we heard 500 times. Uh, and they became increasingly precious, partly because we had that understanding that he wouldn't be there forever. Yeah. 
So I mean, that was powerful for me to understand, like whether it's with my friends or family. And I, I, I shared the, the story of going fly fishing with a group of guys and realizing really quickly, like every night they'd go, every day we'd go fly fishing and at night we'd be sitting around the campfire and everybody wanted to hear the same stories told over and over and over again. And I knew everybody around the fire had heard this one 500 times, but there's something really precious and beautiful. And you, we all have good friends and family. I think that that, that happens. Tell the one about whatever, whatever. There's something good about that. The story's not just about information. It's about you know, bringing yourself back to this room and, and sharing that. But not everybody understands that. Um, I can think of... Uh, a particular person in my life, when I started to tell him a story for the second time, stopped me and said, oh, no, I've already heard this. And, and I realized he just grew up in a home where storytelling was not an important part of it. And so not only did he not necessarily know how to tell stories, he didn't know how to listen to stories. And so sometimes um, I guess it's important to be aware of that. So for you, practically, um, you talk about story night, which is at Tyler's gallery. Tyler, is he still here? He's right there. So, there he is. Hi. Uh, at Tyler's gallery once a month, that, that's a work of watching people that maybe aren't used to sharing their story or telling a story, getting up and doing that. What other practical things would you say to somebody that's, that's looking to either share their story or work to listen to someone else's? Well, as, we, as you and I sat and visited the other day, I, was, I have a tendency to fuss a lot about um, social media, about electronics, and, and the fact that storytelling is, is being diminished because everybody is so busy with their cell phones. Uh, for example, I had the opportunity to attend the NCSS, which is the National Council of Social Studies uh, convention in Chicago the end of November, the 1st of, of December. This was actually the second time that I've attended this um, the first time I went was in it was in uh, New Orleans, and I'd never been to it before. I I went there, and you know there's probably several thousand people there, and I don't know I was there probably three four days, and I left not knowing a single person, and it always struck me as odd that you would be at a social studies convention. Social is all about human interaction, right? And I would leave not knowing anybody. So when I went this time, I was more aware of it, and I thought, well, I will try to get to know somebody. It's not easy, even at a social studies conference. Uh, people tend to hide behind a cell phone. I'm in a room, you know, I have a tendency to fuss about kids doing this. No, all grown-ups were doing exactly the same thing. Um, I was sitting at a restaurant. Um, a woman sat at a table next to me, uh, another woman sat on the other side. I could tell by the bags that they had that they were part of the convention, so I chatted with them a little bit and invited them to join me and uh, kind of got turned down twice. <laughs> Later on, I, I tried to interject myself into a group, just want to spend some time and get to know people. And, and it wasn't like they just shut me off, but it was pretty clear that they had their own agenda. And, um, yeah, it just strikes me as odd. It seems like like it's getting easier and easier to not share your story or not hear other people's stories. Because for you, there's something different. You can you can hear or share your story on a social media account, yes, but there's something 
I would use the word sacred or special about that physical interaction, looking eyeball to eyeball, and, and sharing and hearing stories. There's something good there. Yeah. 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 So um, you had this really fascinating um, term that you brought up when we were talking about this a couple, a couple days ago. This idea of church world, and so some of you, this might be a foreign concept, but in church world, this idea of sharing your testimony, uh, that that would be something that you do and, and work on, um, which honestly, testimony and story might be interlinked, but there's, there's a fascinating thing that you had to share about that. So, Well, I th- talked about the fact that I, um, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and uh, even though it was called the Evangelical Lutheran Church, you really didn't talk about your religion very much. In fact, not at all, except for in church. So um, at some point, I kind of moved on to a more evangelical church, but where it was encouraged that you share your testimony. Um, we even practiced sharing our testimony. And uh, it, it always felt funny to me. I, I never could get comfortable doing it. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, so in, he started talking about this, and I must have suppressed it uh, on some levels, uh, because I went to Bible school where there was a whole section of a class that we took that was about learning to share your testimony. And it, and it was the same kind of thing. It felt a little funky and weird, but we literally had to write out our testimony. And I grew up in a church experience where people would share their testimony, and maybe you've experienced this before. Someone comes in and they tell this story of their life where they hit rock bottom, and it was the pits and the worst of the worst, and they walked by a Bible that you know, was open to a certain passage, and it just, you know, light from heaven shone down, and everything changed in an instant, and now you know, they're, you know, everything is perfect and awesome, because, and this is their testimony. And I'm hearing those stories, and there's not a dry eye in the room, and everything like, yes, that's a good story, you know, whatever it is. And I remember in this class, like, okay, now Matt, share your testimony. And feeling this pressure to be like, okay, I got I to gotta work on something that's going to move hearts, that's going to pull people in like that story. So I was a guy who was born in Billings, Montana, and I went to a Bible school. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? <laughs> like I didn't, and I always felt awkward. I, it always felt weird because at the end of the day, it felt like this product that I was trying to use to get a response from somebody. And there's something, I think, really profound about understanding what a testimony is, potentially, for some of us in this room, and what a story is. Because a story, as we talked about, you're not looking for a response from anybody. You're not looking for a prepackaged, yes, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's just, no, this is the story. However that impacts you, however that uh, grabs you. So, And... My story was kind of boring. Yeah, my testimony was kind of boring. Uh, but I've had some exciting stories in my life. Um, I didn't share a story this morning, but I, I was thinking about it here. So quite a few years ago, uh, when I was a landscaper, I was given the option to, uh, to go to a national convention in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I wouldn't normally have gone, but uh, one of our state officers was on the national board and got to give a scholarship to somebody. So. I headed down to Louisville, and I was kind of rubbing elbows with lots of big people. My company was really, really small, and uh, I mean, you know, they had like, if you made 20 million or more, you got to go to this group there, and I was in the smallest one, and, but I really enjoyed it. I, I was enjoying it, and, and I'd gotten to know several people, uh, one of whom was actually on the, on the same flight from, from Louisville to, to um, Minnesota, uh, 
Minneapolis, yeah, there we go. And so I was really looking forward to, to getting to, um, to visit with this guy. And then I got on the plane, and I don't know that he was sitting in first class, but he was a lot further up. I just kept walking back, 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 and finally I found my seat about as far back as you could go. And I sat down there by myself, and I was just sitting there feeling kind of frumpy. Um, <laughs> I'd been rubbing elbows with all these important people. And, uh, and here I was by myself. And so kind of sitting there feeling kind of sad. And uh, this was back in the days when they served a meal with, with, with a flight. And so I thought, well, at least I'll get some, some dinner out of the deal. So sitting there waiting, and, 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 and they worked their way down. And they got to the seat right in front of me, and they served them. And the lady says, uh, the flight attendant said, I am, I'm sorry, we have run out of the meal. <laughs> I said, oh, no problem. That's okay. So I was sitting there thinking, yeah, that's just what I needed. And about five minutes later, she shows up, and she puts a steak dinner in front of me from first class. And, and uh, I heard a little voice say to me, I'm going to take care of you. Um, at that point, I was glad I was at the back of the plane because I started to cry. <laughs> uh, so little stories like that. You know, it doesn't necessarily, you don't need a response from that, but yeah. Life is full of great little stories. Not only uh, my great little stories, but, but everybody. And particularly back, and I'm kind of jumping around here, but you're used to that. Um, I'm teaching people who are going to be teachers. You're going to be out there with, with all kinds of kids. And I think it's so important that we listen to other people's stories, that we listen to little people's stories, and validate them because... We live in a world where that seems like that's happening less and less because we're relying more and more on, on our technology. So you have the microphone, uh, and you're sitting in front of this thing called CMYK. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would ask this community to do for you or anything you'd like to communicate to us tonight? Yeah, I haven't been part of CMYK for, for very long, so I feel a little bit guilty because I've had two opportunities to sit up here and talk. So uh, I guess what I'd say is thank you because uh, I get an opportunity to share my story. Um, and I feel validated in that. So I guess what I would just say is I would encourage everyone, uh, first of all, if, if you're reluctant to share your story, work on it. Uh, uh, try to do that. Um, Wherever the opportunity comes, uh, if, it's one, if you're one for whom it comes rather naturally, uh, take time to listen to other people's stories. I just think that's, that's really key. Yeah. So, so the, I, what I'd say to you is thanks. Well, yeah, of course. It. Thank you uh, for being here this <laughs> evening and sharing your story and all that stuff. Can we thank Alan for, Uncle Alan for being here tonight? <laughs> you're a beautiful man, and I love you. Uh, as we close tonight and come to this table of bread broken and a cup shared, um, there's a reality that I think most of us understand um, that we've experienced on many levels. And it's reality that actually comes from uh, statistics and mathematics. Many of you have probably heard of this thing known as the bell curve, that when you take a set of data, we're going to throw it up on the screen, a set of data, that it has the chance or the opportunity to maybe plot out in a certain way that, that the majority of the data points are found in the center and in the middle, and there's not very, much, there's not, uh, very many found on the extremes. 
What I find fascinating is not only is this a mathematical thing, but it's kind of this idea of a bell curve has made its way into psychology and understanding humanity in many different ways as well. That whenever you take a topic or whenever you take uh, something in particular within our humanity, there's a tendency to maybe find it within a bell curve. So you, you take the topic of technology, an adoption to change, that there are, there are people that are going to be more prone to be excited about new technology and what's happening, what's coming out. You're the ones that are following the blogs and excited about the you know, Galaxy S10 or the new iPhone, whatever it is, and you're very vocal about it and you're excited about it, and those people are found on one extreme, and then there's another group of people that don't want to change. They're still thinking that the BlackBerry is the wave of the future when it comes to cell phones and everybody just needs to be quiet for a little bit. And that's their voice and what they're bringing to the table. But those are real extremities that very few people live on, but they're the loudest voices. And that most people are actually found in this center plane of, okay, yeah, whatever, I'm just along for the ride, wherever they find themselves on that scale. But that's where the majority of humanity is found. You can take a topic like politics, whatever it is, or even this, whatever the topic is, you can throw up uh, this idea of something to disagree with and something to agree with. And what we know is that there's going to be some very vocal people on the disagree end and very vocal people on the agree end. This is mainly social media for many of us, that there's certain people that are going to be very loud and post on everything and their caps button is always on and they're just always communicating. But the majority of humanity and people are not found on those extremities they're actually found more in the middle, maybe a gray space. But I'm not quite sure what to think about it, and they're just not as solid on it. When it comes to this idea of voice, there's something with this that I think many of us just understand and recognize. Yeah, there are loud voices out there in our culture. And the tendency is for you and I to always just find ourselves in this middle space. Next slide. That many of us just live here. And for me, as we come to this table tonight and this idea of CMYK, I understand how ridiculous this sounds, but I believe in it. The understanding where most of us live in a world where we're found in the middle and we don't think our voice or our story matters because there are loud people on either end of the topic, whatever it is. And so I don't need to be one of those voices. That the work of this table, to eat of the same bread, to drink of the same cup, is an understanding that this bell curve does not exist here. This bell curve does not exist here, but that we are all found. All of our stories matter. And that to be a part of this, Christ's body broken, Christ's blood shed, is to be a part of this thing known as the body of Christ, where everybody's voice matters. And everybody is bringing something to the table, and it's actually found to be far more beautiful and powerful because of that work that we flatten out this thing called a bell curve that Billings, Montana would have a space like that. That's my hope. That's our belief in this thing called CMYK. So tonight as we come to this table, we're going to play a song and just invite you to come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. This is, yes, it's just a silly little meal in many ways, but it's a reminder for us that our story matters. I'm a part of something. And as much as culture, as much as my history or anxieties, whatever it is, would say, nope, nope, just, just stay back, just stay back. Don't step forward in fear and anxiety like the, the woman with the bleeding. Just listen to crowd like blind Bartimaeus, that this invitation will be the same invitation. And as ridiculous as it sounds, that when we look at these questions tonight, that there would be, you can go to the next slide, as we look at these questions that whatever your answer to these questions would be, that there would be this interaction that you would see, sense, and hear that there's something divine that the person of Christ would say, it matters, and it matters here. And so be someone that shares your story, whatever it is.
So we're going to leave that up and just invite you to process. What are your answers to these questions? And to come forward whenever you're ready, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and it would be a work of understanding for all of us. It matters, and we're all on the same level. All are welcome to this table. All are welcome to this belief and this work. Whenever you're ready, feel free to come forward. God, tonight, some of us need a level of interaction like the woman um, struggling with bleeding or blind Bartimaeus, where we sense and feel that um, there's something communicating, speaking to who we are to say that my story matters. And it's my hope that every individual in this room would believe that, that the experiences that you've had, the hopes and dreams that you have, the things that are devastating you, uh, that they matter. And you are not to be a voiceless uh, individual found in the middle of the bell curve, but to find yourself in a place where you can bring your voice. It's there, God, that I believe that this place and our community and world is found to be a more beautiful space, that we find healing and wholeness in our own individual humanity in that kind of work. Same of Christ, we pray, we say together. Amen.